Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. For this week's episode, I have with me Matt O'Kine. Matt is an actor, stand-up comedian, writer, presenter, musician. He is the creator, writer and star of The Other Guy, which is on Stan. Um, That is a series that is semi-autobiographical of his life. He is also the writer of the novel Being Black and Chicken and Chips, which he's currently also turning into a film. He is a renowned stand-up comedian and presenter. He was on the Triple J Breakfast Show for many years. He's also a musician and was just nominated for an ARIA Award for Best Kids album for his music duo Diver City. If you like this episode, you can always give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or you can reach out to me via any of the channels that I will link below. I will also, of course, link all of Matt's stuff below. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. So without further ado, let's jump in. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I'm so very excited to delve into your career, which is going to be a lot because you do a lot of different things. Um, So how are you doing today? I'm good. I just had a fitting with uh, my stylist, Marvin Osifo, for the Arias. So that was an exciting getting dressed up to uh, look good for the Aria red carpet, which is going to be an interesting event. It's not going to be quite as you know big and lavish as it's been other years, but it's nice to get mm-hmm. out. It'll be nice to catch up with so many people who I certainly haven't seen for a long time. And, you know, win or lose, it'll be good to be there, but hopefully Oh, win. definitely. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And what, what are you nominated? <laughs> what are you nominated for at the Arias? Um, best children's album. So my friend and I, KLP, okay. um, we make a kids show, kids music together called Diver yes. City is the group. Yeah, so we've got two albums. Uh, first one was called Welcome to Diver City, and the second one was called Dance Silly. They we were they both been nominated for Arias. Uh, we lost out to Teeny Tiny Stevie's this year, last year. <laughs> the bastards. Um, and I'm t- <laughs> I'm scared that we're going to lose out to Bluey this year. But I also went oh. to school with um a guy called Joff Bush, who is the composer for Bluey. So if we lose to Bluey, it'll be. At least we're keeping it in the Brisbane State High School family. Exactly. And we've also had Melanie Zanetti on the podcast who voices Bluey's mum. So at this stage, I don't know if I can pick sides. Um, (laughs) So I'm voting for you both. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Maybe it'll be a draw. Crazy things have happened. Exactly. Um, Now, I, I guess I should tell everyone what you do. I'm sure that they know, but you are an actor, writer, stand up comedian, presenter, and musician. Um, which is a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) Um, So I'm really interested to know where did your interest in the entertainment industry as a whole first start out? Um, I, it started out pretty early. I'd say when I was very young, I remember vividly in primary school thinking I want to be a performer. Um, And, you know, your sort of pathway tends to get drawn back into the safe safety zone uh the older you get the more you sort of it gets hammered into you that it's a risky career step and that you should do something to fall back on and blah 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 and not many people make it and etc uh and then so then i started gravitating towards things like it you know i was into web design back when it was actually like a new thing (laughs) young people might not realize that it was very much a new thing and i would make websites using notepad on the uh, on my pc and type in html code so i was excited interested by that um but you know my mum died when i was 12 and that very much set off a you know you've you've got limited time on this earth you might as well do what you love and what you want to do and try to achieve your dreams sort of attitude and so that's why i've kind of been relentless in only doing the things that I like doing and and really committing to trying to make it. Mm. I think if you have a fallback, it's pretty easy to fall back. 
<laughs> you know, it's like when you've got a net underneath you, you're not, you're not so worried about falling off the rope, mm -hmm. but, um, but when there's no net, you'll do everything to stay on. So that's kind of always been my mentality. Mm. And I feel like with our industry, you know, there is this constant ebb and flow of, you know, uh, having those moments of like, yes, this is what I want to be doing. And then when that finishes, you're like, oh, I need to figure something else out. And so it's always like, you know, sometimes we have to have those fallbacks of doing those odd jobs and that's okay as long as the main goal is still, I, I am like uh, moving towards what I love constantly. And it's, you know, those totally. in between parts, they, they don't matter um, as much. So. No. No, no, no. Yeah, there's there's a very big difference between, um, you know, doing jobs in between uh, to get by and falling back on, I don't know, a career or giving up on on what your goals to because it's easier to make money um, <laughs> doing something that you don't love. And that's <laughs> yeah. a real trap. I remember being that being hammered into us when we were at, at drama school, and they, you know, they said like, what what's going to happen is you're going to go, you're going to leave drama school. And you might find it difficult to get a job at first. So you're going to go work at a cafe um, and then you're going to work five days at the cafe because you can, because you're available. And then they're going to promote you to manager of the cafe. And then you're going to be relying, then they're going to rely on you to be there week in, week out to do it. And you're going to get a, like addicted to the amount of money that you're making as manager. So suddenly being a part-time and casual doesn't work anymore. And then you just sort of get stuck in this situation where, you know, there's nothing wrong with working at a cafe or doing whatever you want it, like if that's what you want to do, but you set out to do one thing and then you ended up doing another because you kind of, I don't know, got trapped. I think you can say that about like any part of your life as well, the comfortability of like you fall into something and it's never like a quick change. It's always that slow fall into being comfortable, which um, slowly drags you away from your goal, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, this happens a lot to people within the industry as well. So it's very easy to just keep saying yes to another year of radio or another year yeah. on home and away or <laughs> yeah. a, a, some sort of job, you know, it's, it's real. it actually happens quite a lot. Another year writing on whatever project because, because suddenly you've started, you've already committed to the mortgage or you've, you've spent the money in your head and, and you know how to do it. And it's, then you then suddenly you've done the same job for six years and, and some people really love that so that's absolutely fine um but other people do it out of fear of you know losing that money and then then suddenly when when they want to do something different they're kind of they've, they've been stuck in this one lane for so long that they don't know really how to get out of it mm. so um it's not just about working at a cafe or a call center like which is what which is what i do it's it's just about making sure that you've got um, exit strategies when you do get the job and always planning a few steps ahead to make sure that when it does finish, you're going on to your next one and that the work, the groundwork and foundations are already done. Mm, definitely. Um, now, so you mentioned that you went to drama school um, and you've been doing stand-up comedy for a, a long while now. So what kind of, because acting and stand-up comedy are two completely different things. I think to the untrained eye, um, they look sort of similar because yes, um, on stage as a comedian, you are performing a version of yourself. Um, so... Uh, did which kind of interest came first or were you just one of those people that was like, I want it all and I'm going to do it all? No. So as part of the acting degree that I did at QUT, Bachelor of Fine Arts, we did uh, a stand-up comedy module in year two. Mm -hmm. um, now, I had actually wanted to start doing stand-up comedy in the year leading into drama school. After I just graduated from high school, I suggested to a friend that we enter, but um, we weren't able to, we, we missed the cutoff date into this competition called Raw Comedy. And so I entered into drama school thinking, you know what, I'd like to do stand up. One of the reasons why I wanted to do stand up is because I'd like stand up on TV. So I did want to do it, but it was actually more as a way to introduce myself to Australian audiences so that I wouldn't get pigeonholed into what was back then, certainly a very limited number of roles for brown people in Australia. Mm. So I wanted to make sure that if I could build a profile for myself organically through another means, then I'd be well known enough to be able to play an Australian on Australian TV, despite 
looking like being from somewhere else in the world. Uh, and so that was the, that was the main intention. And eventually, you know, to be fair, it actually took about 10 years, but that, that sort of happened. I'd looked at someone like Arne Doe who was able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of was basing my career model off, off him in that um, he had, you know, um, ingratiated himself with Australian audiences very much so. And then, so he was able to make his own movies and TV shows, etc. Mm, that's a really interesting mentality to go into drama school with at that age. Cause I remember when I went into drama school at 18, I certainly wasn't thinking business-wise what my career was going to look like. I was like, oh, I'm going to drama school because I like acting. Um, yeah, so I wonder like where that kind of business mentality about your creative career came from because it's certainly something that I don't see in um, a lot of young creatives or when people are telling the story about drama school, they never kind of think of that that business side of things and how they're going to market themselves. It's always, it starts off with the, you know, the, the passion for the work. And then when you get out of drama school and into the industry, you realize, oh shit, it's a business and I need to, yeah. you know, change my mind. Drama schools need to teach a bit more about the business as well. Oh yeah. They really need to do, I mean, even as little things like they they should really be teaching brand awareness, brand focus, how to run a small business. Like stand up comedy was the thing that actually taught me how to how to treat more what I do as a business mm. because you're a sole trader from day one. You're invoicing people. You're running your own calendar. You're making sure that you you know you know where you got to be on this day. You're you're making the calls saying, hey, can you book me? You're going to the gigs and you're proving yourself. I think that actors really need to understand that they are they are a commodity and that there are that there are that there is you know insignificant as a as a new mattress. I always I always think of it as as a mattress because <laughs> you know you can market yourself. You know you know what here's the thing and a, a lot of a lot of actors probably don't even understand what where the value lies mm. in what they're doing. So when you look at getting cast in something, there are so many factors that sit outside of looks and talent, right? And unfortunately, all everyone, when they go into drama school, really think, and when they leave drama school still, they think that it all just relies on looks and talent. And it's, that's just, that's just not how it works, you know? Um, professionalism is a big one what your brand is and what you can bring to a production outside of the actual performance mm. because someone who can sell 200 tickets to a independent theater show based on their ability to market themselves and drive um, and network is going to be more appealing to a producer than someone who is maybe slightly more talented but does nothing to sell a ticket and so, I mean, yes, someone who's extremely, extremely incredibly talented who does nothing to sell tickets, yeah, they're, they're probably going to sell tickets from their talent. But most people sit in the mid-range and they don't understand what, what value they can bring to a show or a, or a theatre um, that sits outside of those two things, looks and talent. So um, how, yeah, how professionally you act on a set is important because people talk. <laughs> yeah. um, how, how professional you you act in auditions and with your agent and to casting directors and um, what can you bring to the promotional side of things? What, what a lot of actors, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, famous people don't get cast. Don't famous people don't get cast in shows because they're famous. They get cast in shows because built into their fame comes not just an audience, which is what people think it is, but embedded PR and marketing, right? So most, if you ask someone if they're a fan of, um, I don't know, I don't want to make an example of anyone else. So I'm going to make an example of me. <laughs> if you ask people if they're actually a fan of me, most will say, nah, whatever, right? They'll say that they know me, they recognize me, whatever. If I then get cast in something, they'd be like, why is, why would he be in that show? He's not famous or you know not many people know him but it's when the producers at the show are looking for 
publicity for that and they approach a radio station and they say, Matt O'Connor's in the cast, there's a good chance that that radio station will look at me as talent and go, okay, okay, well, that's good. We know that if we get Matt on, he will provide funny stories, know how to know how to talk and publicize the show well with experience without it seeming really hack. Mm. And so they'll likely bring me on. That then exposes the show to however many hundreds of thousands or millions of people that that show that that show has to listen to. So it's not just my direct fan base that actually jumps on board the show. Mm. It's the publicity as well. And that's what you get. So when you got Chris Hemsworth, dollars him to be in your show, but you're also actually paying for the marketing and the publicity that he can bring because every single outlet around you. And so the exposure you get from that is going to be huge. Mm, yeah, but we all know Chris Hemsworth is so shit at radio, so don't get him on. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't come on our show. We asked him on our show and he never came on. That is so rude. And he's in Australia so mean, and Chris. everything. Come on, join us. What is he doing? I don't think he's that busy. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not. A lot of couch time. There's a big impression on Chris's couch, I bet. Yeah, yeah. We're, I hope he hears this. And then he apologizes. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of radio, um, so you were a host on Triple J's breakfast show for a very long time. Um, so how did that kind of come about? Was that from the stand-up comedy that you um, sort of found radio? Because again, radio, I guess it's like doing stand-up comedy and presenting, but just in audio form. So how did that come about? They came to me, radio. Um, so I was in Edinburgh 2013. Um, I was just about to be nominated for the Best Newcomer Award. And they'd reached out, Triple J reached out because they had seen me in a lot of live, in some of the bigger live shows that I'd done recently. So I'd kind of, I'd won Best Newcomer at Melbourne Comedy Festival and that had put me on a few radars. And then the following year I'd had some, I'd done, I had another successful season and been on the gala uh, on TV, which is a big spot. And then um, I'd had a sellout show all all month at the festival. I then went to Edinburgh. Oh, and I supported some big names as well. I supported mm. Aziz Ansari, Chelsea Handler, and, you know, people from Triple J had been to those, you know, they'd, they had been to those gigs. So I'd constantly been on their radar. Mm. I then filled in on the summer program for four weeks with um, Veronica and Lewis, just as a guest on one day a week. Mm. And that had put me further on their radar. And then eventually when the time came for Tom Ballard to leave, um, Alex Dyson had the option to look for a new host. And I was, I wouldn't say top of the list, but I was certainly someone that they wanted to see Mm. Um, so it was a lot of, I'd thought that that time had passed, like the most, that ship had sailed the opportunity to be on the, specifically that show because it, you know, it's a youth network and I was 29 at the time. And I think the guys who, like Tom and Alex, who I was going to be taking over and joining, um, they were like what 18 and 21 when they started. So to have some 29 year old guy, I thought, no, nah, there's no way pushing 30. I'll be, out, I'll be. He's so irrelevant. <laughs> I know, right? God. Um, and so me and my Zimmer frame, you know, crawling into the studio. But um, <laughs> but yeah, and I and I wasn't sure whether I was gonna do it because I had just been nominated for this award and I had started testing and doing and meeting with these big agents overseas. So, you know, when I've gone to London after Edinburgh, I was meeting with people from William Morris and um UTA and CAA and these big agents, you know, um, and there was, there felt like there was hype. And so I had the option to either stay in Australia and look at the radio or, or go back overseas. And I ended up actually saying yes to the radio for reasons that were not related to, um, for a relationship really at the time. Mm. And in doing radio, specifically breakfast radio, because that now changes your daily schedule. Like, yes, you are able to make money from a creative career, but you're getting up at like a god awful time, I imagine. Yeah. Which is a commitment. Yes, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. And so I can understand why people don't um, stay in breakfast radio for 
10 years because um, I'm not a morning person and I certainly would not. Like I get to a point where I'd be like, oh man, it's so nice to be paid for this. But at the same time, um, my body is just crying out to not wake up at four in the morning. So oh, it was the worst. And I mean, I used to have a, I used to have a motto where I, I wouldn't get up before double digits. <laughs> and, and now I have to get up. And now suddenly I was getting up at, um, at, you know, crazy o'clock. Like it was just the worst. Um, and, and still trying to live the old life of going out every second night. <laughs> oh no! And you know, and and also having to do things. When I first, when I was deciding whether I was going to take the job, I called Will Anderson, who had previously hosted Triple J Breakfast back in 20, 2000 to two thousand and five, I believe. Mm. And he he said, you know, the thing is, if you do this job, you've got to, you've still got to live your life. You have to go and do things. You can't just do the job, wake up at four o'clock in the morning do the job, leave at 12 and go back to bed for the rest of the day. You have to live your life. Otherwise you have nothing to talk about. Mm. So your day gets broken up into two days. You, you wake up at four, you do your show, you go home you, by about 12, you have lunch and then you have a nap from like two to five. And then you go out and you do your shows as in your gig, your live shows or your, um, you know, you go to see concerts or you go to festivals or you go to movie premieres or you go to event launches and you do, you, you live your life so that you've got something to talk about the next morning. So then you go home at 10 o'clock, you sleep for five hours or six hours and then you do it all again. Mm. So that's the sort of cycle you get into and you feel like you're sort of jet lagged for a long time, but you know, is it better than being, um, broke and not doing any work at all a million times better so the four the four o'clock starts are a pretty small sacrifice in the grand scheme of things mm. and also when you have a kid then you're just waking up at four o'clock anyway you know so it's like it doesn't matter <laughs> I've heard that and um, yeah to be honest that's one of the biggest things that I'm like oh man is it worth having kids I don't know <laughs> yeah I don't know I mean they're terrible for the environment I have to wake up early yeah there's not a lot of positives about it but no there's a lot of love so it's good <laughs> Um, well, I guess as well, you know, that um, routine also um, teaches you that you kind of um, have to think about the way that you're treating your body and the way that you're blocking out your routine. Because, you know, when you're working on set, you could be on set for like 14 hours or something like that. So um, it's always important as a creative to be like, okay, um, how, how am I going to manage that without getting really, really sick? because yeah you know that's a big thing burnout is something that i didn't one believe in and didn't consider but i'd never really had the opportunity to burn out because most of the work i was doing was very in short sharp bursts mm. you know you go on stage for a night for, for 20 minutes or an hour one night and then the rest of your day you got to do nothing to do suddenly when you're waking up at four o'clock in the morning doing a radio show doing meetings then doing filming a cooking show then going and doing an hour-long show that night plus sometimes other satellite gigs that you're doing at say a festival that's when really you start wearing down the other the other time that it can happen is when you're writing when you're executive producing and writing and acting in uh your own project and that again and it happens to a lot of sort of first-time directors or first-time showrunners or Anyone who's, who's having to look at a project from start to finish has never actually done that before. Pacing yourself and remembering that it's not a marathon is a huge, huge thing. Like I'd never done, until I did my show, the other guy, I'd never, I'd never had a major role in a TV show before. So I'd never known what it was even like to know everyone on the set's name. And to have been in every single scene yeah. of every single day. I mean, the other guy was a was almost entirely from a single character perspective. So my character was in it, except for like four scenes in the first series. And so, and you know, we shot out a sequence. So well, one scene I'm in a pool, it's freezing cold. And then the next scene I'm in a suit coming home from a, an event. And then the third scene I'm crying because uh, my dad just told me something about my dead mom. And then the next scene I'm fighting with my ex's new boyfriend and to have to flip flop between all that when you're shooting 11 minutes of footage a day, it was hard and it really burnt me out. And then, you know, then you get to the end of the shoot and suddenly you think, well, that's it. I've done everything I needed to do, but actually you haven't because then there's the post-production process mm -hmm. and what a lot of creatives, well, okay, I'm not going to say a lot of creatives, what I didn't realize 
is when you're in the when you're in the post-production phase it is a, as critical for you to be as attentive and sharp on the project as it was in the pre-production phase and in the production phase mm -hmm. so suddenly decisions are getting made that you don't agree with but you don't even know the language to figure out how to rectify what what's what's happening within the show because there's edits being made and suggestions on adr dialogue and people are cutting uh characters out of scenes and and then you, you sort of start freaking out you you, you know you, you don't but you, don't, you used all your energy in the shoot you didn't conserve any energy mentally for what is still a creative process right up until the minute it hits a tv show mm. Then you've got to look at the, you know, how does the poster look? What are all the assets look like? Every day you're getting you're getting emails about, hey, what about this? What about can we we've changed the costume that the character's wearing in the in the poster? Can you check that? And then you've got to go out and promote it, and that takes a month as well, or two weeks of just interviews every day. So to save the energy from the very beginning and make sure that you've still got enough to sprint right at the very end it is uh it's a big learning curve if you don't if you've never done it before definitely and i think on top of all of that as well um you know it's a a show that's kind of based on your life so when you're um and i know this because i'm currently in development for a show that is semi autobiographical about my life as well and so when i'm writing things um for the script and I can only imagine, you know, for you going through the process of having to act in those scenes after you've written them, it is an exhausting process to not only write down the things that were traumatic and hard to deal with, even though it's a comedy, you know, there are still moments of trauma and then to have to go into a scene and relive it and act it. And so all of that trauma kind of comes back. And so then, as you say, then the next scene is like, oh, and then get in the pool, Matt. You know, I know you've had your yeah. cry, but get in the pool. And that is super taxing. But at the same time, it is such a pleasure because we always say, write what you know. And so when you do get the opportunity to write something that you know so deeply, it is amazing, but it shouldn't be like pushed to the side that it is really hard as well on top of everything else. Absolutely. Um, and then there's, you know, there's legal stuff. I mean, it's tiring crying about old trauma. It's also <laughs> exhausting navigating the legal boundaries of which you telling your story, um, you know, infringes on you telling other people's story and them getting angry at you and threatening to sue, but <laughs> you haven't even that the show hasn't even been written like it hasn't it doesn't exist yet and there's nothing about anyone else in it but you can't prove that because it's not on screens yet mm. yeah it's pretty full on um but you know these are just the this is just part of what you you know you do it because you you enjoy it and you want to um and you want to tell your story mm, definitely and i noticed that in your other work as well because you also have a novel um, which is seems to sort of be similarly based on um, when you were growing up. And so you really like exposing your trauma to the general public, I see. <laughs> I just like telling um, stories that I know, like you said, you know, write what you know, and I just like um, pushing the limits of that and the boundaries. And, you know, I think everyone sort of has so many interesting stories within them. Um, and it's just about framing them and making them accessible to other people and being honest and open mm. um, and, you know, making sure that even though you're making sure that your character has lots of flaws, being, <laughs> being honest about your own flaws, because people will see straight through it if you write yourself well, mm -hmm. too well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they know straight away that this is not real. Whereas if you can try and be as open and honest about how much you suck as a person, um, they tend to connect with it a little bit better. Mm. What made you want to write the other guy? What was the, was it literally just that uh, that kind of thing happened in your life and you were like, oh man, I should write this down? So it was the biggest event that was happening to me at the time. Mm. And that's kind of what I what I try to do with almost all my stories. I just think what is the biggest event that is happening to me right now? Um, and how can I make it interesting? So, you know, that's why I've, I've constantly revisited 
uh, telling the story about my mum dying because I did the stand-up show, Being Black and Chicken and Shit, on stage, and that won me the award for Best Newcomer at Melbourne. Um, and then I turned it into a book last year, and now I'm turning it into a film. Mm. So I keep retelling that story in different formats and in different ways, and it never stays exactly the same, but it's the core of it is still the same. It's about a 12-year-old boy who's trying to start high school while his mum dies of cancer. That That will never not be, and I dare say... I'm going to assume and I hope almost that that is and will be the biggest thing that ever happens to me, you know, in my life. Um, and I'm not particularly excited about anything worse than that happening to me, but it has had the most impact in my life. It's formed me. It's changed me the most. And it's, and it's definitely, um, it's definitely been the most guiding influence into who I've become. And so I, I naturally always return to telling that story and that's what I want to tell. Mm. But other things, you know, every, everywhere's got its, everywhere's got its, every story has its place. And I structure the importance of each story just on, you know, in my notes. So I spilled a coffee at, um, at, you know, so I structure the importance of each story with how easily it will be consumed and dispensed. Mm -hmm. um, and I often think about it like food in that when you're serving up someone, any art that you make, any art at all that you make will and can be enjoyed by anyone depending on the value that you place on that art and whether that person enjoying it believes that it's worth what you valued it at. Mm. And the, the way that I'm going to make that example is if you, if a friend makes you a meal, you go to a friend's house and they make you a meal, you enjoy the meal and you're grateful for it. It's actually pretty good. You've gotten that meal for free and you've actually really enjoyed it. But if, the, if you went out to a restaurant and paid $100 and you got that same meal, you'd be annoyed because you expected more. And it's the same with any sort of art. So if I put in, if someone is going to pay $50 to see my stand-up show, it had better be worth $50. Otherwise, they're going to leave disappointed. And for it to be worth $50, that's going to take me a year's worth of work to craft every single joke and figure out what I'm going to say in between every single joke and the segues and the story and the overall experience that they're going to have. I want to build a set. I want to make them feel good so that when they spend $100 on a babysitter for the night, $30 on parking, $150 on dinner before, and then they pay $50 to see my show, that that show is worth all of those things. But... If someone's in the car on the way to work and they're half listening to the radio, but they're also listening to their kids whining in the background and I'm on the radio and I tell them a story about how I dropped my coffee on the escalators at Broadway and I completely doused my shirt in soy milk. <laughs> that's still going to be, that's going to be enjoyable for them hmm. because they didn't have to pay $50 for it. And it's just a small sort of throwaway story. It's like if you walk past a, uh, a shop and they're giving out free cheese samples, you'll take it. Sure. Fine. That's yum. That's great. I didn't have to pay for it. It was really enjoyable. Hmm. So I try to just figure out what, what is the value of, of all the content that I'm making and, and set it at a price point that people feel like it's justifiable and worthwhile. Hmm. And so that they can feel like they enjoyed it. Um, yeah. That's a really interesting point. And I think that that's where the, independent filmmaking um, uh, still has those um, areas to grow in. Um, and that's a really big learning curve for a lot of creatives that I see as well, is that, you know, people are like, oh, I made an independent film and I'm going to show it at this small cinema. Tickets are $100 though. And you're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's no. tough sell, right? Yeah. So like, I understand, you know, why, and it's just, you know, we go through all of those things to learn. And so that's that person's um, learning curve, I guess, um, which is fine. 
but I, um, it's very interesting to hear that from you and um, you implementing that in shows that, you know, a lot of people are going to. So I think that I hope that people are listening to that and uh, thinking, oh, okay, so when I'm making work, I need to actually look at it and decide the value because I think sometimes creatives you know it's our work we can we want to look at it and be like this is amazing I'm doing amazing work but sometimes you're not and that's okay you know it's totally fine Mm. that's this is that's half the problem with most the creatives the blocks that a lot of and I keep saying most creatives I don't know anyone's situation so (laughs) what I'm going to say is one of the dangers, the pitfalls that creators might fall into and that I've certainly fallen into is this idea that everything has to be a masterpiece and it doesn't, mm. it absolutely does not. Something that is made is better than something that is not. And that's just a fact. And it's, you, you, cannot, you cannot like nothing and an audience cannot watch or listen to or read nothing. They cannot do that. Whereas, so if, you, if you've only got ingredients to make a chicken sandwich, there is a market for chicken sandwiches. People eat chicken sandwiches all the time. Mm. Not every meal. If, in fact, if every meal was a $300 degustation, you would be so sick of it every single, every, if you had to do that every night, you'd be sick of it. No one wants to watch a three hour, you know, Titanic masterpiece on Netflix every night. No one wants to read War and Peace every night. People love the chicken sandwiches of, art and creativity and culture. They love it mm-hmm. because it's just something that gets them through every single day to, you know, to meet their, to satisfy their their cravings. And so don't be disappointed if you're not going to make the next masterpiece, just make what you've got with the ingredients you've got. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, um, I hate to talk about social media and stuff, but the rise of TikTok has shown that like people are sitting there watching 15 to three minute short clips of someone talking at their phone or doing a little dance or something like that. And Mm -hmm. then they will also go and watch um, The Hobbit, which is three hours long because we all love Bilbo Baggins. Um, I certainly do. I picked The Hobbit because I literally watched it this week. Um, But also what I have noticed in watching movies recently is that back in the day, movies were like fucking tight like i i've watched a few movies recently like i watched charlie's angels and then jennifer's body and my god it was a tight hour and 10 minutes like it got to the point and i was like oh there's no dilly dallying of like you know we have this drawn out conversation that is so not needed but is just indulgent in the writer and director's work and you know there is a market for that as well and so i really i'm you know, sometimes I see in this day and age, because we know that we can make two to three hour long films um, that people want to, but there is also this market for hour long films. Me, Mm -hmm. I'm the market. I'll watch your hour long film. If it's tight and enjoyable, I will watch it. (laughs) The rules have completely changed with the way that, uh, you know, distribution happens online now. Mm. There's no, you know, you don't need to have any even when I was making the other guy, back in the day, you had to make a twenty-three minute, a twenty-three minute episode because mm. it had to fit in the thirty-minute time slot yeah. for ads for all you know all around the world, and everyone needed that that same same rigidity. But you know, with streamers now, suddenly we had a we had an episode that went for thirty-three minutes, and we were going to cut off the last scene, which I thought was a really great scene with my you know me and my ex partner. This is uh, on the show, and and um, Rob Gibson, who was the the head of fiction at the time at Stan was like, keep it in. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be 23 minutes. It can be a 33 minute episode. It's fine. <laughs> You're like, but what? that kind of, <laughs> that kind of freedom is, is, is really great. And that's why you're seeing mm. things like younger where it's a 20 yeah. minute episode yeah. and people fly through it, you mm-hmm. know, because they can, it's just, it, it's so much more accessible. So there's no rules anymore, which is really exciting. Definitely. Um, Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And that's where streaming services have um, been a great addition to the industry is um, allowing the freedom of time of, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, um, scripted content that they go, no, no, we need a a 20 minute per episode sort of thing. 
Um, but there is also room, I'm watching a series at the moment on stand that's 50 minutes per episode and it's a comedy, which I feel like with comedies is kind of rare to have 50 minute episodes, but I'm sitting there watching it because it's great. Yeah. And that's yeah, amazing, you know, so. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing happen on podcasting as well where, you know, traditionally you had to sit into a 6am to 9am format on radio. Mm. And now it's, uh, it's, you know, you can just do 15 minute episodes or 20 minute episodes and all you need to hear is the news and that's it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's all you need to hear. And, and that's, that's your podcast. So yeah, advertisers still get to top and tail all those episodes and still get their revenue that way. But um, you, you don't, you're not bound by these by, by filler, mm. you know, it can just be all killer. Mm, definitely. Um, One thing that I want to ask you about is, um, you know, with all of your work and what we've just kind of touched on is this idea of, you know, writing from what you know and writing about um, traumatic events in your life. But, you know, all of your work is comedic. And that's something that I absolutely love about comedy is that it is um, such an amazing way to approach really hard subjects to talk about without, you know, someone going to watch a show that they're like, oh man, this is going to be depressing. Um, But being able to go, oh, okay, it's a comedy, but you're talking about really important topics. So um, was that something that, because I certainly with my career at first, I was just like, I like comedy and I like doing comedy because it's fun. And then sort of into my career realized, oh no, I like this because it is such an amazing way to present these topics. So I wonder how that came about for you as well. I just don't really care much for the idea of this is comedy or this is drama. Like I, I just, I don't know. I, you know, no one wakes up and thinks, oh, my cat's going to die today. I better be serious. You know, I better get my, I better be, I better get my serious face on because my cat's going to get hit by a car. Like people don't think like that. Mm. It's when you're having fun playing a silly ball game, you know, in your backyard and suddenly you hear the screech of tires and, you know, and suddenly your, your, your cat's on the ground. That's when you go, oh my God. So life changes in a second. Mm. So that's kind of why I want to, that's kind of why I like to do both in all my shows. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, it is that thing of tragedy plus comedy, pl- tragedy plus time. What is it? Tragedy plus time because comedy. Um, so you get the most serious stuff and the most important comedy from talking about serious things, I think. So, I mean, I don't mind things that I just laugh out loud hilarious all the time. I don't mind things that are, that are really serious all the time. I just prefer to personally make things that are a bit of both because that's the way I sort of see life and that's what I want my the world my world in the shows to be to be like as well. Mm, definitely, I think um, I bring up this quote all the time, but I really love it. Um, Darren Gilshanen, when he teaches um, his comedy classes, he talks about how drama is uh, what we all aspire to be, which is you know the beautiful people, even though they're crying, they look. Um, like we, we look up to them. That's who we want to be, but comedy is who we are, which is broken and silly <laughs> and able to be laughed at. And I, I really love that because I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of my, some of my other favorite bits of my shows and my TV, sh- uh, my book, uh, uh, the moments where that, where you should be serious, but it, Instead, it's funny. Like, mm. you know, a friend of mine was telling me a story about how their father-in-law had passed away in, in the hospital uh, and the family was there sort of watching him pass away. But, well, they were all there sort of visiting him and uh, someone ordered a pizza. And <laughs> then the father-in-law passed away between the time of ordering the pizza and the time the pizza came to <laughs> yeah. be eaten. Right. And so they were all like mourning the, the death of this person and then a pizza person turned up and was like, hey, I've got pizza for you guys. And everyone's like, who ordered the pizza? And it was such a silly moment. And then like the pizza person was like, I still need money. Like I know that someone's just died, but I need, to, I need the money mm. now for the pizza. And they didn't know who to get money from. And, and like, I mean, that's ridiculous. Mm. That is just, that's so funny to mm. me, that whole scenario. And I mean, it's, it's really sad that someone has passed away, but they was like, they sort of were talking about how people were laughing. Like it, it was just such a bizarre moment. And I love that. I love that story so much because I think it just paints the, the world that we live in. There is no, there's no singular, you know, everything's a sort of blur. 
Mm, definitely. Yeah, I can. Um, I often will laugh at the the smallest of things in the day of like when someone's saying something incredibly serious, but they say a word that sounds funny to me. And it's like, <laughs> which is real life. I think, you know, why take it so seriously? I know that that's so dumb a, a thing to laugh at, but I find it funny when people say things and you're like, that's a funny word. That sounds funny yeah, that's to That's all me. you need. That's all that matters. As long as you find it funny, that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I want to touch on your music before we go. So um, you are also a musician on top of everything else. So how did that come about as well? I mean, the music's something that I've been doing forever. And I have started making music when I was in high school. Um, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest, it's probably what I wanted to do when I was leaving high school, but I didn't have the theoretical background to do it. Okay. And so I decided to go to some acting summer camps and try out for drama school instead, which ended up being successful. Um, it's always the music. The music is probably the most personal stuff that I do. Um, that because it has such a small audience, it, it, there's still a purity about it that, um, that I am probably slightly more honest in it than any, well, I'm probably slightly more serious in it than any of my other work. Mm. There's an expectation to be, um, lean to those, you know, I was saying there's a, there's like, it's a scale. It's all blurry comedy and drama. There's a tendency because people say pay money to go to a comedy show. I, I will skew slightly, you know, more favor the comedy when I'm doing a stand up show. Uh, whereas the music I'll slightly skew more serious. Uh, so you probably get a better insight into who I am, um, in the present moment via whatever music I'm making at the time. Mm. And I do it because. I love it. I mean, I do it like no, barely anyone listens to it. I certainly don't make any money from it. I just keep releasing it because I like doing it. And I, and I, it's again, it's that thing where I keep putting it out to the world because if I don't, then for me, that feels like I've failed myself. Mm. So I don't even expect people to, I don't expect it to gain a huge audience. And I don't expect it to take off or to, for it to chart or for me to make millions of dollars for from it but I put it out there in the world so that it exists almost as an archive of my thoughts, you know, a mm. public sort of archival, you know, archival archive in a way, you know, because one day I won't be alive. And I always think, well, would I, would I prefer to die having these songs on a hard drive in my cupboard or to just have them exist in the world where someone or anyone might be able to listen to them at some time in the future mm. so that's why i keep making the music and i really love it and the more i collaborate with people the better the music gets and it's never anything that is trying to be something that it's not i never try to i never try to make music to sound like something else or because i think it'll be popular i always just make the songs that i want to make at the time mm. so yeah it exists and it's under boilermakers and then then of course i work with my friend christy uh, on the kids music yes. as well diversity and so that's been fun to have a little bit of uh you know industry recognition from that with your arias etc but still we do that because we love it we still you know, we're not doing it because we, we're trying to take over the industry and become the next Wiggles. We just like doing it. Yeah. Well, it must be incredibly freeing to have a part of your creative venture that you're not trying to um, sell at a profit and to be like, okay, this needs to make me money so I have a salary, you know, because obviously yeah. with all your other work, you have to look at, okay, I need to get paid for this so that, you know, I can have a salary. Whereas, you know, as a creative, we still have that side of us, which is just like, I just want to do it because I like it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's what I mean. I always used to imagine, I used to tell myself all the time that I would be, I'd consider myself successful if I made enough money from comedy and acting to be able to make music for nothing. Mm -hmm. And I do that now. So I have to accept that that is, that I'm successful, mm. you know, that's, that was the goal that I set for myself and I have to be happy with that. Mm. Um, otherwise it's really difficult. It's really easy to just keep going down a hole of needing and wanting more and it never being enough. And when, when, when you need and want more in this industry, it, uh, I think it can, 
it can really just destroy you. I think it's a thing that can really set off your, um, uh, yeah, it can really destroy you. Mm. And I think sometimes when you take away that need and want for it to be something massive, in the end, you kind of, um, it becomes some of the most honest work that you do because it's not for anyone else but yourself. And through that, people are like, oh, this is awesome, you know? And even just having one or two people say, oh, this is awesome. Um, you're all, you've already beaten the expectation that you had because you were just doing it for you. And so for it to be something to another person, it's like, oh shit, that's satisfying to me because I only expected me to like this process. So, you yeah. Know. I mean, look, it, it's the, the book and the TV show are my $300 degustation meals <laughs> and my, you know, stand up shows are your kind of fancy dinner night, date night out. Um, you know, in that sort of mid-tier, nice <laughs> restaurant sort of vibe, a mm-hmm. uh, total bill of about $150. And the music is, is you know, it's the dinner party. It's me cooking dinner for my friends, which everyone's invited to. So, mm. yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy with the dishes that I make and I just hope people <laughs> enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Well, um, Matt, we've been going for a while, so we are going to wrap up now. But um, do you have anything that you want to plug before we go? I will obviously link everything below in the description. But um, yeah, do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, Look, I'm always plugging everything. So (laughs) uh, my book is called Being Black and Chicken and Chips. Mm -hmm. It is out now in an adult version and a teen version. Um, So if you've got younger people in your life, then uh, you can buy it for them for Christmas, but also you can buy it for yourself for Christmas. Um, Do that soon before it becomes impossible to be delivered or there's an e-book version. Uh, I've got my show, The Other Guy on Stan, which is, uh, and on Hulu, if you're listening in the States and Super Channel in Canada and Flow in Argentina. Um, I am, I've got my two Diver City Kids albums on uh, Spotify and wherever you get your music, as well as my Boilermakers music on Spotify as well. My podcast is called Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast. It's out every single morning, but uh, about 5 a.m. and it's about 30 minutes each app. It's just me and my old mate from Triple J, Alex Dyson, having good times. And other than that, that's about it. <laughs> That's about it. By the way, having a podcast episode out every day, um, even though it's only 30 minutes, that's a that's a lot of effort. I imagine you don't record it every day, but yep. you do record it every day. Yeah. Holy shit. You record shit. it every day. Look, um, I, you win. I'm not going to pretend like I could do that. So <laughs> I'm going to No, look, to be fair, now. we get paid to record every day. So it's fine. You know, it's, it's my job to do it every day. <laughs> I think and I, we like it. Look, it's part of my it's part of my favorite. It's it's honestly the highlight of my day is hanging out with Alex Dyson and, and just talking silly stuff. So um mm. yeah, I'm looking forward to to doing that, you know, later on today and True. you'll hear it tomorrow. <laughs> so go and listen to it, guys. <laughs> All day breakfast. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Rachel. See you later. <laughs>